Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, sustainability expert, Jeff Demansky. I discovered the power of mountains in college. I spent the summer between my sophomore and junior years driving cross-country, armed with just a AAA map, my guitar, and a tent, traversing canyons and tackling 14ers by day, and sleeping on desert pavement and lush valley floors by night. I spent the next summer at 8,000 feet in Telluride, Colorado. In the mountains, I felt safe and sane, calm, alive. I moved to New York City in 1995 and was quickly swallowed by glass, concrete, and stone. My Guatemalan pants and tie-dye t-shirts yielded to khakis and button-downs. Hiking and mountain biking gave way to marathoning and working a lot. I came to feel far less safe and far less sane. So when today's guest invited me to camp on a mountain near his family's upstate home, I left at the chance. Together with a ragtag bunch of his high school friends, we whooped and danced and laughed by a bonfire beneath a canopy of stars. But concrete and corporate jobs prevailed, and I was again swallowed whole by the sturm und thrang of stress in the city. In the summer of 2014, during a tiny window of time between my high-pressure MTV and Facebook jobs, I visited Jeff in his Beacon, New York home, some 75 miles north of New York City in the Hudson Highlands. We kayaked and swam in the river and watched a bald eagle devour its catch from just a few boat lengths away. The sky and water and sun and abounding wildlife was awe-inspiring. And it was healing and restorative in a way that I hadn't remembered. Awe lowers stress. It reduces the production of cytokines, chemicals in the blood that promote inflammation and it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which calms our fight or flight response. Little wonder then that just a few years later, when a product I was working on at Facebook became global news, we're talking front page of the New York Times here, I began sneaking away to the mountains on the regular. I would wake well before dawn, meet Jeff on Breakneck Ridge or Storm King Mountain in all weather and all seasons, an activity we've continued to this day. We've grown up together in those mountains, Jeff and me, and counseled one another through all sorts of life and career drama. Our hikes always end too soon and with too much left to share. As executive director of the Center for Environmental and Economic Partnership and director of Hudson Valley Energy, Jeff leverages his skills as a scientist, an artist, musician, and above all, communicator to help communities make the right choices for a sustainable future. This week, as we mark our 52nd Earth Day on April 22nd, Jeff and I discuss his journey from the mountain in his backyard to the esteemed SUNY College of Environmental Sciences and Forestry at Syracuse, his pursuit of a Princeton PhD in behavioral science, and his vision for and actions toward sustainable communities. We begin on that mountaintop near Jeff's childhood home. That is such a great place to start because of the influence that had on me and this idea of perspective and looking out on things. That is Sugarloaf Mountain, one of the many, many Sugarloaf Mountains that exist in this world. That's in the heart of the Hudson Valley, about an hour by car northwest of New York City. 
And interestingly, that Sugarloaf Mountain sat kind of in the middle of a bowl of a valley of its own uh, with views all around where at night when we were up on that mountain in the tent, you could see the glow of New York City to the south. And if you look to the west, you could see High Point, which is where New Jersey and Pennsylvania met. And then if you look to the oh, north sure. and east, you could see kind of the valley of the Hudson. It's interesting because it was my backyard mountain. I mean, from the house that yeah. you know my family, <laughs> my dad is still building <laughs> since like 1979 <laughs> up there. I'd go up there with frequency. It was like 20 minutes, 15 if I was really booking it to get to the top of that mountain. But I spent at least once a week up there and, and often more than that. Mm. It was a full 360 view, but you know, to use a term, sort of a bird's eye view of the landscape that I grew up in, which I think had significant influence on me and thinking systemically how everything's connected geographically. But I think it also felt like mentally it, it kind of oriented me and gave me a perspective in thinking about those things that inspired the choices I made afterwards and what I decided to focus on. Geographically, right? It's a transition space on the way up to the mountains. And then, you know, to your point, the city is within reach. It's an unrealized gem to many people. 20 years later, it came to be so powerful for me, a place to come and kind of commune with you and reconnect with part of something much bigger at a time when the world of, you know, commerce and media and technology where I was working got really narrow. What is your family's trek to that mountain, broadly speaking, generationally, historically speaking? My dad was of interesting background. He's a New York City cop for most of his life, but a man of, a right. man of many skills. It's definitely considered rural, even though you could see the lights of New York City. And it's a place where all the cops and firemen, many of them, were up and about, mm -hmm. which is really interesting in the sense of community. A lot of people commuting out of that place to get away from the density of living in a city and amongst other people. He was a hunter and a, and a fisherman and a camper when he was young and brought us up there. But a strange place to be where you really had the pull of both. You had rural to the north. You could see the Catskills. But you had the city not far away. And so a really interesting perspective in watching how other people within that region navigated through it, what they identified with, what they prioritize, the way that they interacted with other people around them. And by lead of that or not, <laughs> the way they didn't interact because they were getting up there mm -hmm. to, to be away from other people. So it was a really right. odd beginning for me in terms of sense of community and connection to others. I was lucky to have good family and great friends you know, that gave me a sense of place and community. But it is an odd place. It's a fantastic place. I'm still up in the Hudson yeah. Valley by choice. And it's beautiful to be part of the evolution that's still happening in a lot of ways, or it's still a very minimally filled in canvas of, of interesting things happening, a focus on localism. But it's dealing with its, the histories of its past where a lack of coordination, a lack of really central community effort in a lot of, a lot of it left it open to some abuses in terms of development pressures and even economically not as strong as it could have been. Directionally, is, is there a sort of pivotal experience or was it the day-to-day -day experience that led you towards where you and I end up bumping into each other, at least tangentially, but then eventually, literally, yeah. Syracuse, New York? It was being within that landscape and looking at it in that way. Yeah. And I have an artist heart <laughs> and hands mm -hmm. um, and looked at it through that way and and thought my path was going to be some form of art. Landscape painting was a lot of what I did and, and ink drawings about right. natural landscapes and features, um, definitely informed by where I was. 
what I observed <laughs> were not the best decisions that were being made about how to live within the land and amongst other people. I guess I was fertile ground for more messaging, but it was being there and paying attention to the news that started to filter out globally in the late 80s of hearing Jim Hansen do his uh, testimony to Congress about climate change, you know, 1988. Yeah. And and having heard about the ozone hole for a while, these these global challenges, right. but also these local experiences, development challenges, starting to get involved at the end of high school to try to prevent some crazy developments that would have uh, ruined the aquifer in the area, you know, through just too much development, led me to where you and I met. I, I made a, a serious transition away from thinking I was going to be an illustrator uh, to having to be part of a solution. So I, that's when I ended up going to Syracuse to the Environmental Science and Forestry School and delving yeah, in yeah. to just get whatever tools I could to understand the problem and contribute to a solution. I went more of a technical route in my beginnings. I went the way of the way a lot of people still think, um, even though it's become sort of a laugh line in our world in the last decade, but of thinking that straight up science would save the day. Mm -hmm. If you got the knowledge and you shared the knowledge, that would be enough to, to point our society in the right direction. And so I certainly started out that way. But it's funny how storytelling became so much certainly equal, if not even more dominant in terms of the skill set and the knowledge I needed to, and, and that's that's reflected in my day-to-day -day these days. So that's why I think you and I have had such good conversations over the years, you know, you being such a, you know, master of story in various forms. It does really make sense, doesn't it, that you would start with science. First, you'd have to ground your education there. But second, you, the story would take time to sort of live inside of and kind of incubate contextually. It makes sense. What I've delved into is to be much more of a advocate and even an evangelist for the social sciences. I'm an unusual animal in the space that I'm working in because I think I'm a realistic optimist about what lies ahead of us. But it's because of the social science recognition of a bunch of tools that we need to apply which are based in this anthropological recognition about where we come from and how we operate. And that is that we are, you know, not far from the savannah as hunters and gatherers telling stories. Right. And, and stories are still where it's at for us. And still really powerful in terms of motivating us to do or not to do. I think that's even an understatement. It is the power that motivates us to do what we do or don't do. There's a period of time where you were in New York, and then you were in Princeton, and then you were in Beacon. But there's a huge amount of time where you were deeply immersed in a very challenging education from my standpoint. Anybody who gets a PhD, that's a fair commitment, man. I'm just interested in, like, tell me a story about that experience. I was working for a bunch of years as that scientist with what I now recognize was sort of a delusional perspective on how people would be influenced by pure facts. Right. And I was working for a number of years in New York City. And you know, that's when we got to really know each other. I was working at a planning and consulting firm there on 29th Street. And we had various clients, including someone who became a president and recognizing that there were a lot of other influences on how decisions were made and that a broader approach was necessary. In particular, I saw that economics was so significant, that whole science and policy and politics were really key. My toolbox wasn't full enough. I was missing a bunch of tools. 
And so that's when I recognized the importance of just, you know, I got a big science tool in there, but let's put some other things in that toolbox. And that's, mm -hmm. there was a great program, the Policy School at Princeton, where I could get and add to, you know, through the lens of being a scientist focused on these environmental and climate issues, some knowledge about economics and the politics and how the stakeholders in these areas interact with each other. So, you know, maybe it's like those baby steps. It was a no brainer. I was like, oh my God, you got to do this. And I went there, you know, you go to a, you go to an institution like that and you, you do wonder in the back of your mind, like, Hey, am I going to stick around? Maybe there's some bigger need there. You know, it's nice to be branded with this Ivy, Ivy <laughs> brand coming from a SUNY background, which I love, love my SUNY, but there's, there's yeah. some definitely advantages. And one of those advantages is you get people who won the Nobel Prize walking into your classroom and telling you that you are missing this massive tool, <laughs> this really significant mm -hmm. instrument that can help you be successful in terms of getting people to make good decisions to be able to continue to live on this planet. That uh, Nobel Prize winner was Dan Kahneman, who won for behavioral economics in 2002. Mm -hmm. And that was what led me to the PhD decision that I was like, oh my God, I, I need more of this. I ended up starting and, and then helping to, to run the sustainability office at Princeton. Where in there is the story that I love telling about, you must've come to my office and you're just like, hey man, I'm just out pounding on doors, handing out resumes. And it's like August. But I always was like, yeah, man, that's how you do it. That's what you do. I always love that story. You know what's great about that story? You're talking about when I got my first real job. <laughs> I was in the Peace Corps after I was in, an undergrad. Right, and I came back right. and told everyone in the Peace Corps, colleagues in the Peace Corps that were around the country, but I, and I was pretty much Mr. New York City because of my proximity, yeah. even though I didn't live in New York City at the time, telling everyone I wasn't going to live in New York City. And then I came back. And then within weeks of being back, I, I met the woman I'm married to now for 22 years yep. who lived in New York City. Yeah. It, which is why we know each other. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. And and after telling everyone, no, I'm not going to live in New York City, you know, within months of that. <laughs> what's beautiful about that story, yeah, I'd literally hit the yellow pages at companies that were doing environmental work and it amazingly worked out, but I was literally knocking on doors. We've played shows together. You helped me write a song that is actually my wife's favorite. I saw from her iPod that she's listened to it many, many, many times. How is music woven into the fabric of your life? For me, music is like blood. I mean, I just need it. If I need a mood shift, mm. music is there for me. It is so unbelievably essential. At Princeton, when I helped start the sustainability office, that's when I really transitioned from being focused on environmental issues to this idea of sustainability. It's not just looking at the environment, but how that overlaps with the economics of decision-making in the world we live in, and also the people aspect, the social aspect, which I love. And while I'm recognized a lot as an environmental professional and talking about wearing the suit, sort of that disguise of the, of the environmentalist, I definitely am well-versed and can speak the economics. Honestly, and what's so poignant for our, our time together is that social piece, yeah. the most important and the most often overlooked piece. What I found in interacting with some of the best sustainability professionals out there, an unbelievable consistent theme of the arts in their backgrounds. It's that arts perspective, be it visual arts or, or music. There's a systems thinking mindset to that. Storytelling, too, thinking yeah. about how to convey messaging in different ways that I think is potentially what makes someone successful. And, you know, I think we all could benefit by more of it in our lives. 
how does that manifest in the real world for you? Like, help me understand how that makes sense to you. Well, it's interesting maybe to put it in the context of what we've inherited from the generation before us of a science perspective. You talk to some scientists or you observe scientists and they express frustration where they're doing good, important work, but it's not being taken up. You know, their people are not acting on it the way they should be. There's truth to a stereotype of a scientist who just doesn't want to interact with the outside world. You know, they love what they're doing and they're content being the lab coat wearing safety glass, high technology, maybe scientists. But that is a silo and silos don't get our society to where we need to go. So you talk about the space between (laughs) many spaces between spaces between silos, but spaces between all the people that are important and kind of moving things forward. And I think that's where it's about. It would be wrong to, to leave it at a tolerance for thinking about that way of bridging the space between all the different silos that we're talking about. But I think that there's some level of passion for the people who are successful Mm. and thinking in this systematic way about making those connections. And it's those people who've been teaching us about ecology and the food web, you know, the way the interconnectedness is all there. Mm -hmm. It's just, in some ways it makes just perfect sense, this natural extension of that concept to other areas, including our our daily interactions with others and and, and the, the degree to which you have tolerance and generosity for that. I suspect the multidisciplined is what you're talking about, right? The idea that there's science and then there's some other facets that really tell the broader story that you want to be sure you're being clear about as a key component of who you are. That's right. Yeah. And it follows in that description too, of what those other disciplines are, but you're nailing it. I feel like when you bang up against this pragmatic capitalism of like, well, if I don't knock on that skyscraper's front door, I won't be able to stay here with my brother in my case, you know, a person that you're in love with, uh, Kristen in yours, right? So there was a very strong imperative, but you kind of have to get hip to capitalism really fast in that town. Otherwise you're just miserable, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's also part of growing up that you go, oh wait, I see there's more to this than I thought. So talk to me about resource conservation strategies in the built environment. How for the layman is that a differentiation? You're talking about like in cities, not like in national parks. Yeah, that's a recognition that we are a human species that interacts with other humans. And that's probably the more responsible thing we can do (laughs) when we look at our footprint on the planet. That there is this world that we created, fully acknowledging it, but thinking about how to make that built environment, the things that we create and build for our society even better. That U.S. Green Building Council credential, which is a demonstration of the experience I've had really delving into that built environment perspective. Like roofs with grass and like filtration systems. So we're using water more efficiently. I mean, again, I'm just laymanizing yeah, sure. this hardcore, right? That kind of stuff. There's a lot of room for growth in, in that area of understanding the built environment. In particular, the recognition that you shouldn't silo this idea of a building, this physical structure right. from the people that occupy that building. Mm. And to achieve the goals of what the green building movement is really about, there's a lot of call it naivete, about what behavior means and how not only how you design them, but how you operate those buildings. So that's part of my skill set, my palette of uh, of preferred paints. So give me an example of that. Are you talking about like, we've done all the right things with the windows in terms of how they manage UV and we've got some really efficient HVAC systems. I'm making this up, but the people working inside are cranking the heat and uh, leaving the windows open and not recycling. I'm being reductive, but is that kind of what you're talking about? 
That is the perfect case study. That is often the perfect description of that one. That is like spot okay. on. <laughs> you mean the difference between like, well, we built this thing and this is how it'll function versus this thing interacts with a whole ecology of behavior and ultimately creatures, living creatures that aren't just humans really, right? That's exactly it. And how we should be mindful and thinking about the exteriors too. Think about not killing birds <laughs> for aesthetics right. in what we're doing. Even like when you want to let natural light in, there's a lot to be considered. What is behavioral science and how does it relate? I mean, my sense is these are the levers that you've learned to help people understand so that we all can get better at pulling them for one another and with one another. Yeah, that's spot on. I mean, it is it is about recognition of levers, but also the obstacles. It's about getting past foolish assumptions that we've had, a belief in the degree to which we are rational animals, rational actors, pure Keynesian economics. We're not. But there are systematic ways that we deviate. We just operate in the real world, the biases, you know, the shortcuts that we take. What's it like thing that we'd all recognize as a manifestation of that tension. One of the things that was shared early on by the experience by Dan Kahneman was uh, in a room full of psychologists and climate scientists. And he came in and he, and he used the little video clip and told a story about something called inattentional blindness. So inattentional blindness. Mm. He showed a bunch of students playing with uh, a few basketballs and you're paying attention to the students in the white shirts after the video stops. He asks how many passes happened amongst the people in the white shirts and various people are making guesses. And he asks how, you know, how many of you people saw the guy in the gorilla suit walk past the students mm -hmm. and, you know, in a room of 150 people, maybe a handful of people put up their hands. You know, it's a visual representation about how we can be burdened visually when we're focused on a topic, on a, on a task. You know, we're focusing on light colored shirts. So we missed the dark colored gorilla suit. That was not a blip. It was like mm -hmm. a five second, plenty of time to see a thing that went through. But it's a perfect analogy for our daily experiences. We're burdened with a lot of decisions, thinking about being flooded with news and information about very important issues. And there are a lot of other very important issues that not for being a bad person, but for being biologically limited in what we can do, we don't pay attention to. Mm -hmm. So it's inspirational in so many different areas. It made me much more of a persistent person and a, somebody who really embraced the idea of how do I break across those barriers? It, it gave me sympathy <laughs> and tolerance and patience for dealing with people. I fully understood the challenges that we had. You know, marketing has, has known this in this area of it for a long time. you got to hammer on people and you can repeat messages, yeah. but, it, but it wasn't being utilized in this field. And that's where I have that optimism is that these toolkits, these lessons, these insights that have been systematically understood are just immensely powerful. The other beautiful story that I recognize from my youth is that one of the shows I loved growing up was this show called The Greatest American Hero. And I think you and I have talked about mm -hmm. this. William Catt, 1980 to 1982. Mm -hmm. The premise of that show was that this high school teacher was given a super suit by space aliens, but he lost the instructions. And that, for me, is a perfect analogy about what I'm doing. Over the last 50 years, we have started just kind of like the Rosetta Stone. We've interpreted this instruction book that we didn't know we needed. We're still a young species, really, in the scheme of evolution. What's happened in that last 50 years, starting with Dan Kahneman's work largely, is that deciphering of the instruction book about how we really operate, the things we really do and don't do.
I feel a kind of pressure and optimism around solar. I want to be able to do that for my house, as an example. I want to put energy back on the grid, right? But the blocker is like, well, but the market just fell apart. That's sort of these liminal space between what should be in terms of like, why aren't all our roofs putting energy on the grid, right? And what is, which is, well, because it's been three years of pandemic and people are terrified. (laughs) That challenge of decision-making and the feelings of guilt, but the hurdles, there's hurdles to making decisions that could be good or maybe not good. And there's analysis that goes in there. You know, the paralysis by analysis thing is a very real thing with people. Right. We don't want to make the wrong decisions. You know, we, we have a bias towards doing nothing, inertia, instead of making a wrong decision. So that's when another very significant lesson from this field of behavioral science and behavioral economics, one that was really beautifully described by another guy who won the Nobel Prize for behavioral economics in 2017, Richard Thaler, who I love because he's mm-hmm. so funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he was a co-author of a book called Nudge with Cass Sunstein. They talk about defaults, the importance of defaults. And it's how you design anything around us in which we make decisions. Mm. They talk about choice architecture, the architecture in which we make choices. And that's not just building architecture. That's like, what color is the paint? What music's being played? What do you smell? What did somebody Mm -hmm. tell you before you made a decision? All these influences are the architecture in which right. you make decisions. What's the height of the cereal for kids in the grocery aisle is the one yep. I was is, it at, is it at eye level or is it something hard to see? Is the apple more yeah. product? They give that example in the book. So this is a fantastic yeah. example about how you can design for decision making. My day-to-day is community energy programs in New York State. And it's based on a default program. It basically provides access on a city and town and village level, whole towns at once, making a decision with the leadership in the front to switch people over to paying only for renewable power from, from New York state sources on mass as a default. They're given this mm-hmm. membership basically in this buying club so that they're only paying for renewables. So it removes the hurdle of having to make that decision. We're doing the same thing now with community solar, this idea that you can be you can support really local generation by subscribing to it through this community energy program that we're doing, it becomes a default. So people will Mm -hmm. have to say if they don't want it, there's oversight to make sure it's a good thing generally and no restrictions, but it becomes a very powerful anchor that the majority of that community will do. It's making it easy in a way, right? That's it. How do we make things easy? It feels like you have like a lot of people with vested interests in keeping any really sense of status quo around most things, right? Like car manufacturers would have preferred to never deal with electric, for example. Moreover, my sense is, and I think there's plenty of evidence to support that, in fact, there was efforts to to the contrary, right? Like doesn't fit the narrative with big oil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So where are you guys able to position that default so that it's not lobbied out of any consumer's way? It becomes a local law. It's a program done in partnership with the local utility. Ah, I see. So it really does have that mechanism of taking advantage of, to be a dorky thing, home rule in New York State, which cities and towns and villages have that power. But to make that decision, we do public outreach. What I do is storytelling within the community, education, because the leadership doesn't want to do this in a vacuum. And matter of fact, the state, the Public Service Commission, requires that there be education efforts, which allows me to kind of 
transition and, and you know how I do this to you all the time, flip it around on you. But there's one thing that I really wanted to talk about is sort of like the focus of this area. And it's a reason why I love what you're doing, where you're talking about the concept of deep and simple and what's important yeah. in terms of connection amongst people. And that's what I was kind of setting up in this idea of the importance of the social aspect of yeah. sustainability for me. The human connectedness, the human experience. Exactly. And springboarding from the idea of community conversations and how do we make decisions within communities and talk about choice architecture. When we talk about the context of what's happening in our society writ large right now with this tribalism, <laughs> social media is a magnificent thing, but social media, as we learned, can be really a contributor to the tribalism that we see. It allows to An take another behavior. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. confirmation bias is one of the concepts from, from behavior. You can really reinforce your own perspective and really exclude anything that changes your mind. So the most important work I'm doing right now, and this is like crazy soapbox guy and, and dreams, but it's actually becoming reality. My belief is against these external pressures and this ability to look yeah. towards external tribes and it, it, with, you know, thinking about the gorilla, how you're not paying attention to other important things. What's been enforced by neurobiology too. And there's a great TED talk I think I've told you about by this woman named Rachel Wurzman. And she talks about this portion of the brain where dopamine hits happen and it's related to addiction issues. Mm -hmm. That's where social interaction benefits are also recognized and that dopamine gets mm -hmm. associated right. with social interaction. And our society, especially in America, has moved away from social yeah, we're interaction. We're doing it less and less. We were headed that way anyway. And then the pandemic just was like, okay, you know, cool. Everybody just stay home and watch yeah. TV and have a beer. And I'm, you know, maybe this is delusional optimism, but I'm trying to actively contribute to what I'm hoping is a rebound effect that people will be so enthusiastic about re-engaging and actually will do it and it'll substitute for these external influences that we have. So I'm working on how do we have a recreation of community? What are the mechanisms, the tools, the platforms, the default strategies that can get people within a city, a town, to spend more time with each other. And what's beautiful about it is that in my mindset, the old scientist mindset, I'm like, get together because we got to solve a problem. Neurobiology has shown that there are health benefits to just being together. Mm -hmm. There are oxytocin hits from just interacting. And some of the great um, examples of this has been shown that people just getting together and singing a note together. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. interacting and sort of within the arts is one of the most magnificent ways to negate differences and to align similarities amongst people. We need more choirs. We do, we do. That align the right and the left. And I'm, I'm, I'm only half joking, you know, at my previous place of employee, one of the things I did was convene basically the 100, 150 most quote unquote important uh, media executives in any region. And one of the things I did in the big, big things I was doing at the end was, was bring the arts in. So we would usually have a performance the first night. And invariably it was the moment where the whole experience changed for everybody because they all shared, to your point, that frequency connected them, right? Both literally and figuratively the experience of the knee major or, you know, whatever, like you literally have the same vibrations. Is wild that we've never talked about that, but you live the experience exactly what I'm talking about. And we could get into a brain scanner <laughs> if we wanted to. Right. And right. it would show you 
why that was so powerful. How do you hold hope amidst the headlines, right? Like Maggie wakes up scared about the, the planet. You know what I mean? Sure. She has literally come into our bed in the middle of the night at a 10 year old, yep. 11 year old and been like, I can't sleep. I'm worried about global warming. And you're like, oh yeah, that's actually a rational response. I worry so much that people are just so goddamn afraid right now. You know, like it's Bunkerville for the most part. I feel like everyone's just living at a breakneck speed and they're terrified that the economy is going to collapse and, you know, Russia's going to nuke us now or whatever. Like there's a lot of really scary stuff. What is an actual like thing that you do that we should do? How do you think about creating that connectedness in the communities around you? Yeah, two sequential steps. And I think hopelessness comes from a feeling that there's nothing to be done after everything's been tried. Mm. It's like you, you know, if you're trapped somewhere and there's no other tool that you can employ to get out of there, that's when hopelessness is going to be what you're left with. What gives me hope and kind of what I've alluded to already, there are this whole big, big box of tools that mm. we are, we've created and is lying before us and we've just begun to use. But it's definitely been started. There are many people who are utilizing it. Obama used it to get out the vote. And there are smart people thinking about how to engage more people for multiple reasons. There are mechanisms that we really just understand more about ourselves and we can do a lot with it. One of the greatest challenges we have in our society is the drive towards overconsumption, looking for external somethings to fulfill ourselves. Um, which leads to the challenges around us. But what I'm talking about and what I'm grappling with and I'm excited by is the only thing we really need is each other. Mm. You know, we don't need things, mm -hmm. but that is what neurobiology is, is showing us very clearly. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that we're all going to sit around just, you know, in unbleached off-white clothing and chanting. But I think there's a significant benefit, especially what I'm hoping for, is the recognition of the significant mental health challenges that are all around us. Yeah. But the solution to the mental health challenges for, I think, a significant portion of that solution is our interactions and our connections and doing so locally, right where it's at. So when you're on, on your sugar loaf in your mind's eye and you're looking out at all the communities and the glow and the connectedness. How do you imagine the policy work and the innovation, and the leadership that you're describing, how would that manifest if you had the ability to sort of cast a magic Johnny Appleseed across the whole region? Part of the challenge is I, you know, we, we want to create these engagements, but we, you can't just go in there and talk about what's on your mind. It's truly about listening mm -hmm. and then prioritizing and then supporting. A lot of what I focus on is workforce development efforts, this idea of how do we get more people to do the work, get more hands involved. Right. That's part of the behavioral insights is that we do need more people to do it. There's great technologies that can facilitate these connections, but we need more people doing this work. So the next generation, man, they've got plenty of opportunity and I'm trying to help foster that to be the resources within those communities, to foster those conversations and to connect across because you need a network right. so that you don't end up with like feudal tribalism of the past. We don't want one community fighting another. We just want there to be more fostering of 
prioritization, which I think there would be with connections across communities, that's when you get this beautiful tapestry of progress in the direction that we got to go. It reminds me of like this just overwhelmingly clear message, which is like love begins with listening. Because if everybody doesn't feel heard, how do they begin? You're just going to steamroll like, you know, and the gap between those who have and those who don't is wider than ever, right? Like the richest 10 guys have like doubled their net worth over the last three years where everybody else is basically like clawing for a loaf of bread. There are so many tools and we've barely used them. Including those conversations of overcoming these social stigmas that we have around income, you know, and that's led to this abstraction and and differentiation in, in what people earn and what these other people earn. It's another area where I think communication can help. Is that how you see the work manifesting? I mean, it's like newsletters and groups getting together to talk and, and workshops and academic stuff and workforce training. Yeah, and breaking down stereotypes. It's been easier for stereotypes to persist about all these politicians being, and there are some bad examples out there, but these are people who really are trying to do the best yeah, yeah. that they can in so many cases. I hate the stereotype about, oh, politicians all in it for themselves but they are the ones that can be the connections within the community. So what does Joe listener like regular human do to be like, all right, I don't have any of this in my neck of the woods. What do I do? You be that neck of the woods, man. You connect, you be open to connecting. Friends and neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Lifelong friends.